Welcome to Between the Gutters Podcast, where we talk about the comics within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with me is our other stories within the panels. What did I say? You said we talk about the comics within the panels. Oh, sorry about that. (laughs) Sorry about that. Man, I've been doing so good about these lately, too. (laughs) Uh, So, I'm I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us today is our other co-host. I'm Drew. How's it going, everybody? Hello, and uh, we also want to give a Heidi, Heidi Ho, hello to our our longtime friend and uh, fan, Alexander Shana. Say hello there, buddy. Well, howdy do, everybody. Howdy do, everybody. (laughs) Sort of. I mean, for now. (laughs) He's a disembodied spirit that haunts us. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So. For today's episode, we're going to go over, well, first of all, uh, I want to cover, uh, address the fact that uh, in the last year, we finally were able to finish our top 25 Marvel comics of all time. And for us, that's a pretty big deal. That was the first topic that we ever started podcast on. So it was quite a journey for us and it was quite a milestone to get to that point. Uh, you might even say that if that was if that podcast episode was a was a comic, it was a key issue for us. <laughs> the first nope. episode. All right. <laughs> <laughs> the first, the twenty fifth episode, uh, the the twenty fifth top Marvel of all time episode. So, <laughs> it's a key podcast episode. Sign up to buy that. Uh, buy buy us. <laughs> so. In today's episode, what we're going to do is we are going to address some of the comics that didn't make that list. Uh, we're going to address some honorable mentions. And we're also going to talk about things that people would have expected to be on that list and just talk about why they didn't. How's yeah. that sound to you, Talia? Yeah, that's pretty much what we got to do. I mean, we, we spent a good amount of time spread out throughout our first uh, 59 episodes talking about the Marvel top 25 list and this episode we just needed to do an addendum of sorts to address all the things that Albert just mentioned uh so this think of this yeah think of this as addendum one because you never know in the future we might come back and do another addendum (laughs) like 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 six different appendices sections yeah exactly exactly (laughs) because because the future changes right like who knows in, in like 10 years we got to revise the list, right? There, there could be some other great Marvel that, that comes in here in the next 10 years. And if, uh, if we're still alive to do this podcast, we may have to revise the list. What if even crazier 25 Marvels come out in the next year that are eligible for all 25 slots in the top 25 Marvels of all time? No, nah, that wouldn't really Wouldn't work. that be crazy? But that wouldn't be awesome. <laughs> Because I mean, that's possible. You know, the criteria, it's like, like Kevin Garnett said, anything is possible. <laughs> I mean, you have to throw out the one criteria of like, does it does it pass the test of time? Mm-hmm. That's a good point, man. That's a good point. True. So, uh, before but we, we... Did, we did have some stuff that. Go ahead. We do. Wait, what were you saying, Albert? Go ahead. Uh, never mind. I was just bantering. Go for it. Oh, okay. I was just going to say... Uh, the moment has passed us by. <laughs> <All right. laughs> 
Yeah, I was just going to say that before we uh, kick this Marvel Top 25 addendum off, I need to make a special addendum to one of our previous episodes when we talked about our evergreen Batman stories. Because here's the thing. Every time we finish recording an episode, inevitably, the next day, either I or Albert will just come to the other guy and be like, man, how did we forget to say this? Or how did we forget to mention that? And it just always happens. And, and I was sitting around the other day uh, and I just realized, hey, when we did our Evergreen Batman uh, episode, I forgot to mention two important stories that needed to be on that list. And I'm just going to name check them right now um, just for posterity to make it official on our podcast. But two other essential Evergreen Batman comics that you need to check out are Dark Knight, a true Batman story by Paul Dini and Eduardo Rizzo. And you also got to check out Batman, Creature of the Night by Kurt Busiek and John Paul Leon. So add those to the Evergreen Batman list. And if you're ever in the mood for a great Batman story, those will definitely satisfy you. So good ads. Good. Yeah. With, with that said, uh, let's, let's get into our Marvel top 25 commentary. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Before we start off with, uh, before we jump right into the honorable mentions or comics that came close, but had no cigar. I, you know, I don't know if that's how I would fit that term in close, <laughs> but no cigar, whatever. Um, yeah. We thought it'd be a good idea to list off the top 25 comics that we did have on the list. As we mentioned earlier, this was, uh, this was a long, long-term ongoing project for us and, uh, understandably, there was there's a likelihood that you don't remember everything that made that list. So, mm-hmm. the Marvel Top 25, starting from number one, was Fantastic Four by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Uh, number two is Amazing Spider-Man by Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, and John Romita Sr. Number well, three is Daredevil well, by Frank that, Miller. Uh, just Ditko. Okay, well, that's true. Good catch. <laughs> I mean, it's lit. Okay. Yeah. Good catch. Uh, Daredevil by Frank Miller, Claus Jansen, Bill Sikowitz, uh, Mazzuchelli, and John Romita Jr. Uh, Nick, uh, at number four was Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. by Jim Steranko. Uh Number five was Iron Man Extremist by Warren Ellis and Ari Gravnov. Uh, number six is Akira by Otomo. Uh, number seven is Thor by Walt Simonson and... John Buscema? Oh, it was Sal. Or Sal. Okay, Sal Buscema. Um, number eight is Marvels by Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross. Number nine, Runaways by Brian K. Vaughn and Alfona and Miyazawa uh, and etc. We have X-Force slash Ecstatics by Peter Milligan and Mike Alred. At number 10, uh, at number 11, we had Captain America by... Ed Brubaker and Steve Epting, as well as additional creative talents that were on that comic. Number 12 was the Fantastic Four Unstable Molecules by Strum and Davis. Number 13, we have Savage Sword of Conan by Roy Thomas and John Buscema as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Number 14 is Criminal by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. 
at number 15, we have Alias by Brian Michael Bendis and Gatos, Mike, Michael Gatos. Yep. Uh, number, number 16, we have Inhumans by Paul Jenkins and Jay Lee. At number 17, we had Spider-Man Fearful Symmetry, also known as Craven's Last Hunt, by J.M. DeMatteis and Mike Zeck. At number 18, we had Hawkeye by Mike, Matt Fraction, David Aha, and Wu. Um, not Wu. too sure what Wu's first name was. Danny Wu? Okay. Annie. Uh, huh? Annie Wu. Annie? Yeah. Annie Wu. At number 19, we have New X-Men by Grant Morrison, Frank Quitely, and... Uh, The various artists that worked on that book, is, and uh, retroactively, we decided to include the Miles Morales uh, Ultimate Spider-Man comics. At number twenty-two, by Miller and Hitch. At number twenty-two, we had Omega the Unknown by Jonathan Lethem, Lethem and Feral Dalrymple. At number twenty-three, we had Punisher Max by Garth Ennis and uh, Parlov as well as the other various artists that worked on the comic. At 24, we had Howard the Duck by Steve Gerber and Gene Colan. And at number 25, we started the list all the way back then with Avengers slash New Avengers by Jonathan Hickman. So that was our list of the 25 Marvels of all times as we... As we uh, as we saw it, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna go from there uh, into we're gonna go into the criteria that we decided. Just for those of you who've been following along, our four criteria was included: the craft of the work, the originality of the work, the impact of the work, and the work's ability to withstand the test of time. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Let me, now let me that ask, we're let me ask you guys though, uh, what overall? What are your impressions of this list? List of criteria. Well, the top twenty-five. The, the top twenty-five. It's a list. I mean, it's hard to say, right? I mean, <laughs> it, it's a list. Thank you for adequately describing it. <laughs> Dang, I felt I feel kind of demeaned, and we invited our guest on our show to cut our to just cut ourselves down. Well, I'm just saying it's 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 a very good list, but it's like in terms of drawing an opinion, I'd say that what you are opening up like the placement of certain items, or maybe the the bottom of five might be placed with something else potentially, like. Like it's all those close calls that at the end of the day, it's like, would this change? Would this list currently be that much different? Would it be different if you were making the list, Shanice? Uh, it's it's actually very possible. Yeah, I mean, just what, because. What, what are some of the things that immediately jump out to you as as making you think, man, why is that on the list? Oh, I mean, nothing like that per se. It's just more like in the process of making that list, there might have been certain books I might have over the over the process of conversation have put up higher than others. But mm-hmm. since mm-hmm. I haven't put as much thought into it as you guys have, 
at the moment, I can't say anything jumps out at me because I listened to the top 25 and I was like, yeah, I think that's a good solid top 25. There's nothing but, that, it, there's nothing where when you look at the list, you go, it's not fair. How can that be? <laughs> I mean, no, not really. Other than my any- own unwritten stories, but you know, <laughs> I only have myself to blame for that because I haven't written them yet. Right. And if and you didn't write them, then Marvel can't publish them. Yeah. Are there any comics that are conspicuous by their absence? In the sense of, if you're asking me, were there, are there books I would assert that, uh, that perhaps a larger population would have wanted or expected to see on the list? Mm-hmm. But whereas I'm fine with them not being on the list, then sure. So like, the, like you said earlier, like the elephant in the room is always is like Claremont's Uncanny X-Men. It's like so many people, lo- you know, give it such credence and emphasis that I think, I, I would actually say a majority of people who read comic books would, would put that on an X-Men top 25 list. Heck, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they put it in like a top five or top 10 list. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think the three of us have similar sentiments about um, Claremont's work on Uncanny X in terms of their readability nowadays and their actual storytelling um, value in the sense of like, do they make for good stories versus, and I think, th- I think this is where the people conflate the idea of are they good stories versus were they influential to the comic book industry? Right. So right. like to the latter, I will, I can't deny that definitely helped um, Marvel in the eighties and it even defined and motivated stories or ideas like like Grant Morrison's new X-Men took a lot of the ideas that Claremont had, like like those yeah, terms of ideas. He just remixed and them. them and, and yeah, just gave, like remixed them, yeah. But in a way that made them feel fresh and interesting while giving us stories that we felt engaged by. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, so like sure, there are conspicuous things missing from there, but not conspicuous to you or me or Albert. Just like, we know why they're not on this list. Well, yeah. But how about something that you personally hold in high regard or something that you favor that you would have expected to see on the list, but don't currently see? You know, one of the books I was thinking about because and maybe I just didn't read the top 25 list and I wasn't paying attention when you're reading it off earlier. Uh, <laughs> it's good to know that you ignored the reading of the list as well as my reading of the list to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have the list. I just haven't memorized it all. And look, I get I, it. My look, voice I, is painfully dull. No, it's more like I got I, I droned out in in the in the in the beauty of your voice that I, I couldn't focus on what you were saying. I was more focused on the sounds you're making. I ain't no Andrea Bocelli, okay? <laughs> no, that's true, you're not. Speaking of which I actually listened to him perform recently. I mean oh, uh, interesting. I, I didn't know you were into him. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of opera. Uh, the only work I would have actually liked to have seen in the top 25 is a spiritual accompaniment to Jenkins in humans, which is Jenkins' uh, century. Mm. Mm. 
that just makes because, sense. Just because I found it to be a great, like the the way it was, um, like I was a, I didn't read it when it first came out in single issues, but the way it was sold to the audience was kind of almost did you feel like you were like you're like wait there was a character called the century from marvel's old history of of works yeah and it was a nice ode to um like the good old days of early of marvel's early days because like it was a nice artistic ode to that Mm. yeah so for those of you who um are listening who aren't uh who aren't familiar with what Shanus is talking about here. Uh, in that era of comics, uh, they they were just putting out a lot of great stuff during this uh, period of time. And one of the comics that they put out was The Century by Paul Jenkins and Jay Lee. Um, but there were some other additional artists that worked on it too, from what I remember, um, with uh, connected one-off issues. And uh, one of the things about this series that it's sort of gimmicky, but it's kind of a cool gimmick was that they essentially said that they had found letters and some old documents showing an old character that, you know, Stan Lee, I think it was Stan Lee or some one of their older writers had created and that, you know, this character had never been put to use. So they decided in the modern era to introduce this character into the marvel universe and you know there was there was a lot of uh i guess spectacle and um i i yeah spectacle put to it just because they you know wanted to really make this draw a lot of attention to it but eventually they would reveal that that wasn't the case at all that the sentry wasn't uh, a character that they had created way back in the day and he was just, it was just an idea and they thought it'd be a good way to roll him out and uh, draw excitement for him. Yeah, it was kind of a little bit of a hoax or a trick on the on the readers, kind of like what they did with uh, Fantastic Four Unstable Molecules. If you remember right. when we talked about that story, uh, Fan- Fantastic Four Unstable Molecules was about the quote-unquote real family that the fantastic four comic was based on um mm. and it, and that comic was com- became complete with these annotations and like old photos and information about the real historical figures but you know in actuality that wasn't the case <laughs> the fantastic four was they weren't based on any real people but that unstable molecules kind of like played up this imaginary uh fiction to the reader uh in a metatextual context to to make you think Oh, you're reading about uh, the real figures, and with the Sentry, it was kind of the same thing, right? Like I, I remember Wizard Magazine had an article where, where they got a quote from like Stan Lee or somebody, and he was like, "Oh yeah, I remember that character. He showed up in like this one random issue of some forgotten comic, and I always wondered what happened to him. It's cool to see that Marvel's bringing him back, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, they were really uh, doing a media blitz. Yeah, uh, I did feel like. The, the, I guess the, uh, all of the, the media stuff that they were doing around the century was definitely higher profile than the unstable molecules stuff. Yeah, definitely. Way more uh, high profile. Yeah, it, cause it was just, like, I don't, I don't know how it, 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 um, how it connected on terms of like your average 
fan or whatever, but you know, it, you you saw it in like you said in magazines and stuff, and um, people were talking about it. So, yeah. Well, you know, their people, industry people. Yeah, and I, I think people or just you know general fans who who were buying the comics uh, at the store. I remember uh, so like one of my friends was collecting it at the time and. And uh, he would he would tell me about it. Like I think at the time he was he 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 thought it was uh, actually really based on a forgotten character from the you know from decades ago, and it yeah. wasn't until like a certain amount of time had passed, and you know it was it was like oh okay it, it's it's actually not based on an old character. <laughs> yeah yeah they were just they were just playing with us you know but it it was kind of. It was just one of those tricks on the reader that it wasn't like a mean spirited trick or anything. It wasn't anything. You mean he wasn't getting punked? Nah, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> I think if, if you were the kind of fan who would get really mad that somebody would trick you like that. You, you don't would... deserve to read. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you for completing my thought. <laughs> you should be stripped of all of your comics and like, stripped of your ability to read period yeah. you, you don't deserve anything <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. so do do you guys have any other questions or would you want to move on to the list of stuff that just missed the cut well here here's one thing that i noticed about our list is that there's a good mix of comics from every decade from the 60s on did you yeah. notice that albert well you know here's a little bit of inside baseball but i do remember conversations with you where we did when we were compiling the list where we made a conscious effort to include things from a lot of different eras and you know i i took that to heart because I don't know about you, Drew, but I personally didn't want to be one of those comic fans that felt like, uh, you know, the era that they grew up reading comics was the best era and nothing good can ever be outside that era, you know, after that era or before that era, because those kinds of people are just extremely, personally, I think they're extremely frustrating and I think it's extremely limiting. <laughs> well, so you're, you're saying you don't like to listen to Rob Liefeld? I I don't um, I don't like looking at his art. I don't like listening to him as a person. Um, I mean, I guess if he if I ran into him and he wanted to tell me stories about his kids, it, it would depend on what he'd have to say. If he was like, "My kids are the greatest kids on earth ever. Ain't no kids like them. Ain't nobody ever had no kids like them. They the champions." Then I'd be like, "Okay, Rob, you need to you need to tone this down." How about how about you turn the dial down to two, Rob? I get it, I get it. Your kids. Well, great. I mean, if you talk about his kids that way, I mean that's good, right? You'd, you'd hope a follower would talk about his kids that way. It's not good because they're not my kids. What do I care? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody seems to care, Albert. <laughs> so if those of you, that, if you said, you know, my kids, they're they're, they're meh. You know, wouldn't you feel like aren't they your kids? Should you at least somewhat proud of them? Uh, like, I'm sure for him, it's great that he loves his kids. I'm, I'm happy that he's not abusing his children. Fine, <laughs> whatever. But personally, he, he the in terms threshold of being a father that we can at least not hate. In terms of me 
taking the perspective of the listener in this conversation, which, although selfish, is incredibly true. <laughs> it's the only perspective that I can take, and it's the perspective that I advocate for. As the listener in, in every conversation, I just want you to know, I better not find you tedious. <laughs> well, Albert, that's why I don't talk to you about my kids. You have kids? Good. Good. No, I don't have kids. That's also another reason. <laughs> it's always going to have more than one reason to not do something. Yeah, that's, uh, that's logical. <laughs> so those of you who are friends of mine who happen to be listening, if, if you have children and you think it's a good idea to share pictures about your, your family vacations or birthday parties or whatever, let this, take this as a mental note. Don't. Just don't. <laughs> I mean, to, to I could not fair, be more disinterested like, in these things. <laughs> to be fair, that's how parents go from being reasonable to being absolutely annoying in like five seconds or less. It's like, we get it. They're your kids. We hope you're proud of them, but nobody else to hear about them. <laughs> Especially Rob Liefeld's kids. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, I was going to say that um, going back to our list, I was, yeah, I agree that, that we definitely didn't want to um, be like those, I don't know, curm I mean, I'm not going to say we're not curmudgeons because we kind of are in some ways, but we weren't going to be, <laughs> <laughs> we weren't going to be the kind of people that, that say all the comics that I grew up reading are the only good comics. And, and you know, there's a certain period of time uh, prior and after that, that are just not worth looking at because we are true comic book fans, so we've read comics of pretty much every era and exposed ourselves yeah. to all sorts of comics. And these, none of these uh, comics in our list is on the list because of any kind of affirmative action based on yeah. what year they came out. I, I genuinely believe and stand by each of them. I genuinely believe that each of them is worthy and great, and it just so happens that there's a variety of, uh, you know, time periods and, uh, totally. you know, we got stuff from the sixties all the way up to like stuff that came out around like 2013 or so, you know, which is, yeah. To, to us, that's fairly recent. I'm sure to other people that's like really old. Yeah. Well, I was going to say there might've been stuff, you know, that is even more recent that didn't make the list, but mm -hmm. Just, you know, to clarify, a big part of that was that this was an ongoing project over the course of two to three years. And I'm sure new stuff came out in that time period. And by then we had already committed ourselves to the list. So right. we, we um, finished this list in, in time for our first episode, which was, I think, October of 2017. That was when we started with uh, numbers 25 through 21. <laughs> yeah. We uh, were pretty ambitious back in the early days when we were young, right? trying to do five talk about five different things in one episode but i don't consider i don't consider myself at that period of time as young i just consider myself less old yeah we were, we were less old <laughs> <laughs> and I so mean, our, like, our list was finalized by the time we yeah. began in october of 2017 and we did not alter or change the list in the years since mm. But it's kind of like what Shanice mentioned earlier, right? Because there might have been stuff that came out recently, but it's harder to say that those comics 
can withstand the test of time or that those comics have had a big impact. Maybe that's unfair to more recent comics, but I think it was, that was our criteria and we had to stick to the criteria. That's, that's how we know that our list is completely subjective and perfect, not subjective, objective. And well, I guess it's both, right? We are, mm. I guess to be honest, like I'm sure personal taste had plenty to do with it, but I also think that objectively speaking, we did our best to hold to our um, criteria. I thought you were going to say, object objectively speaking, we have good taste. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that, that's exactly what I meant. Thank you, Albert. Thank you for, thank you for articulating my thought more clearly than I could. You, you complete me, my brother. <laughs> like There's no the bias last episode, here. Man, if you, you are my better half. <laughs> now we have it. I said it in the last episode. You said it now. The link in the chain is complete. Yeah, and now everybody listening knows why we don't have kids. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually pretty interesting. I was um, I was listening to another podcast um, like earlier this week, mm -hmm. and one of the things that I learned was they were talking about the the Nobel Prize, and. This might sound unrelated, but I, I promise you there's there's a thin connection here. <laughs> so I was listening to them talk about the Nobel Prize, and um, they were saying that in the years that it was coming out, early on, they would award it based, like, uh, especially the uh, the science awards in, Nobel Prize, in the Nobel Prize, they would award it whenever uh, a discovery or, uh, you know, a theory was made or whatever. Mm -hmm. But what they discovered was that a lot of the times that a lot of the science was either faulty or rushed or, you know, proven incorrect later on. So one of their new policies now is that they basically only award uh, the science Nobel prizes for, th for scientific works that have been, I think on average, already out in the world for about 25 years. Oh. Yeah, so that that is my connection and in, in that's my roundabout way of saying that, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's understandable that there could be a lot of great stuff that came out like last year, but, you know, we, we don't know what ages well and what doesn't until we get to that point where the it's, it's, it's become part of the past, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, I'll even so... say that there's stuff that's come out in the past couple years that I think is really good and, and would be worthy of the list someday. Uh, but again, it's just a matter of, of time taking its natural course because it, it, wouldn't yeah. really be, it wouldn't really be fair to say that something like Jason Aaron's Thor run uh, withstood the test of time when it just ended, you know, like yeah. a, uh, a year ago or or that it's had an impact in just this t amount of time. So maybe, maybe, yeah, again, maybe that's a little unfair towards against recent works, but nothing that we can really do about that unless we change our criteria, which we ain't gonna do. You gotta know if it's a fine wine or someone is basement hooch. Yeah, <laughs> that reminds me of that one episode when we couldn't stop talking about Albert's moonshine. <laughs> <laughs> uh.
That's no moon. <laughs> Why am I missing all my teeth? <laughs> <laughs> it's, all that, it's all that hate you grind away at night. <laughs> I, I purposely make it a point to get four hours less sleep just so I could get four extra hours of hate in. <laughs> <laughs> Man, the hate, it's a hate that drives you. <laughs> sleep is wasted on you. So, do you guys want to move on to the titles that we felt, you know, that just missed the cut of making our top 25? So, yeah. you know, it's probably somewhere in the top 30 or top 35. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I, you know, had, had the list gone that deeper, that much deeper. Yeah. So, the first title that we have is Miracle Man by Alan Moore. Um, I've it it had a bunch of various artists. I know one of the artists was Chuck Austin. Um, <laughs> Out of all the artists who worked on Miracle Man, how come he's the one that you want to name? <laughs> it's the one good thing that he's ever going to do in his life. <laughs> it, let, let him have his moment to shine. <laughs> who else was... Who, who were some of the other artists on the list, Drew? Oh, who worked on this comic? Alan Davis. Uh... Steve, uh, I, th- I believe Steve Bissett and John Totalbin, the artist who also worked on Swamp Thing with him, Rick Veach. Uh, I, th- I want to say there were at least one or two other guys whose names uh, escape me at the moment, but those are those are the main ones. And here's here's the thing with with Miracle Man, is that it's kind of a cheat because Miracle Man uh, wasn't published by Marvel originally. So for, for those of you, well, here's, here's a brief uh, summary of what Miracle Man is. Miracle Man is an old British hero from British comics from like the 50s. And he was basically a ripoff of Captain Marvel, the DC Captain Marvel, Shazam. So it was a kid who said a magic word and became this grown man who was basically like Superman and had those powers. And that's what Miracle Man was for British readers uh, back in the 50s and 60s. At some point, he fell into, uh, you know, the, the forgotten Absolutely. bins and, and everybody, nobody read those <clears throat> comics anymore until uh, the early 80s when a British comics magazine got Alan Moore to do some new Miracle Man stories. So he ended up doing an, basically a radical adult version and uh, interpretation of the character. Um, it's a very deconstructionist work that predates Watchmen, but I think is absolutely every bit as influential on superhero comics as Watchmen is. I think Watchmen has influence in not only superheroes, but just in comics in general. Miracle Man, I would say it's, it's definitely, when it just comes to the pure superheroics, it's definitely as influential as, as Watchmen in that area. Maybe it's not as influential in terms of what he did with formalism in Watchmen, but just in terms of how it have impacted superheroes, it, it's pretty important. Mm. The, the thing is that it was originally published in a, a British magazine in the 80s, and then a smaller independent uh, American company brought it over uh, in the 80s, as a few years after, um, called it was a company called Eclipse Comics, 
So they, they published Miracle Man, who actually, another tidbit, Miracle Man uh, originally was called Marvel Man back in the day uh, in Britain. But when they brought him over to America, they changed the name to Miracle Man because Marvel Comics didn't like the idea of a superhero named Marvel Man if they didn't <laughs> publish it. So, so when, when it was in Britain, it was called Marvel Man. But here, when Eclipse brought it over, they changed the name to Miracle Man so they wouldn't get sued. Mm. And for a long time, the, that work was lost to us in terms of easy access because it was out of print. It was, it was in legal limbo because of the rights. So Eclipse went out of business at, one point in the, at some point in the late 80s or early 90s. And then uh, Todd McFarlane thought he bought up all the rights to the, that Eclipse had. But there were some complications. And apparently, he wasn't allowed to reprint those comics either. Uh, and it just ended up being in legal limbo. And uh, so Neil Gaiman, uh, who wrote Miracle Man after Alan Moore, uh, try to fight for it and uh, just through legal battles I guess eventually he and Todd McFarlane uh, were able to somehow well, I don't know if they settled things in a court of law or if Neil Gaiman just won the case uh, I can't remember how it played out but through some legal wrangling eventually Neil Gaiman got the rights and then uh, I think he sold them and he in turn sold them to Marvel and that's why Marvel was able to reprints all of those Alan Moore and the Neil Gaiman issues. Uh, I don't know, maybe I want to say five or six years ago. It might've been even more than that. Maybe even like seven or eight years ago, they reprinted uh, the entire Alan Moore story. So my confession is that when we made the list, I actually hadn't read those comics. Uh, technically they're published by Marvel because now, if you go on Comixology and you find those Miracle Man comics, they're from Marvel. Uh, you can find them digitally. You can probably f still find the hardcovers at a store or someplace. But yeah, at the time we made the list, I actually hadn't read the comic. Uh, so it, it's just an unfortunate oversight, but I would definitely say it should be in the top five. Yeah, it's... Uh... Yeah, you mentioned earlier that it was something that for the longest time was super inaccessible because people just couldn't get their hands on it. But it was something that I had learned about just because I feel a lot of magazines that I was reading when I was young were constantly referring to it. And uh, well, not constantly, but they referred to it. And the way that they talked about it really built it up in my imagination as a kid, which. Mm -hmm oddly enough, is weird because, you know, it's definitely not a book that's meant for kids. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> it, it, but, you know, it, it, it felt like it was a work that was well regarded by a lot of highly recognizable people. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself, you know, as, as someone who is into comics, um, it, it, it almost makes it forbidden fruit right because like it's so hard to get a hold of but at the time everybody was talking about it and this was you know well before the era of digital comics yeah on, and it was well before the era of uh where marvel was reprinting them 
So like of all the years that I was out there digging for these comics, I'd even go as far as to say that I definitely never saw the, any of those in like quarter bins or anything like that. So I wasn't even able to read, uh, random issues, random issues, just, just to satisfy my curiosity. Yeah. It was just too unobtainable as we were growing up because this run was from the eighties and, when we were growing up in the 90s, well, number one, it was like too hard to to find them, even if we knew knew about it. And I didn't really know about it until like probably the later 90s when I was when I was when I started to read things like Wizard Magazine or or uh, I don't know other publications and go on the internet and you find out what people consider are the best superhero comics. So by the time I was really interested in buying these comics i just had no access to them yeah so, yeah yeah it's pretty fortunate that marvel has reprinted them uh, I, I don't know uh if they're still easy to find uh if you want a physical edition but last i checked they were on comiXology weren't they on sale uh, a week ago or something yeah so the hardcovers came out and they sold out pretty quickly and they haven't reprinted them since as far as i know so um i wasn't able to get them and i did get a bunch of the issues in the quarter bins in recent years but uh there are two that are just elusive to us um but yeah uh about a week ago they were still on sale uh there was a sale on comiXology for uh marvel max comics which is you know their adult adult comics and they had volumes one two and three which is all of it for uh how much was it 10 bucks so i i i splurged i bought them all and yeah. um yeah so it's you know uh i was just glad to have it have it in some form and uh yeah it, i'm looking forward to reading them yeah so I mean, maybe I'm mixing up something else, but I, after the hardcovers, didn't they also do like trade paperbacks of those? I don't know if I saw the trade paperbacks. I, did Did you see uh, trade paper, paperbacks? If they ever, I don't. I actually don't think they did make trade paperbacks of. Yeah, them. I feel like they went straight to hardcover, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It feels like they did those um, those the big issues hardcover. that had uh, they. They had a bunch of extras in them, like uh, sketches and, and layouts and, and penciled pages and reprints of older uh, Miracle Man comics. There were 16 of them for the Alan Moore run. And then they did a set of three hardcovers collecting it. And it's been tough to find uh, ever since. You know, like if you weren't buying them at the time, yeah, tough to find them now. Maybe. And I think they did one hardcover for the Neil Gaiman stuff too. Yeah. Maybe I'm confusing with something else Alan Moore wrote that was re- that was in the past seven or years released. For Marvel? Maybe not for Marvel, but something Alan Moore did that was also out of print for a long time then it was recently reprinted. Oh, yeah. I don't, I'm not sure. Maybe what... by, I think it was reprinted by, by, by Checker. Are you thinking of Supreme? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what, okay, that's what I'm thinking of. Supreme, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Supreme's out of print too. Alan Moore Supreme. You might have an that, easier that time in, finding those in quarter bins, though. But I think they did two trip paperbacks of that, though. 
Yeah, yeah. This was I have, back so in like those the early two thousand. Using that with Miracle Man. Yeah, so, so they did a couple of trades of Supreme back in the early two thousands, and yeah, now you're you're better off just looking in the back issue bins for those. I'm not even sure if you can find those issues of Supreme digitally. Yeah, mm. I just had those confused because I have, I have I definitely have those trades. I, I was able to get them before they were completely like gone to the wind. Yeah. Let this be a lesson to you, kids. If there's something that you're into, jump on that. Yeah. Post the person, you then can. you should get consent. Uh, yeah. Don't don't rape people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just. Uh, I don't think there's. I feel like anything you need to insert the GI Joe sound cue now. Knowing is half the battle. And knowing is half the battle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so moving on from uh, Miracle Man by Alan Moore another title that we have on our list is uh, Captain Britain by Alan Moore yeah um, I'm, I, I have to admit that I'm less familiar with this uh, I, th I think it suffers a little bit from the same uh, thing that Miracle Man suffers from in that I just don't have access to it. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, it might be a little easier because it, since it's like straight up owned by Marvel, I think I, I presume that it's something that I should be able to get a hold of on Comixology mm -hmm. or Marvel Unlimited, yeah. maybe or Marvel Unlimited. Um, I I think the thing about this is in large part that Alan Moore's name is on it, and you know. Uh, for like, I don't know, like if if you guys have been able to glean from this podcast, the level of respect for Alan Moore's work that we have, but you know, at this period of time, the dude was just he was just on fire, and yeah. you know, uh, just coming out with some of the greatest stuff uh, that was just changing comics left and right, and this. This, uh, it, I don't know, it, it's hard for me to say that this is necessarily something that is as up there as like Watchmen or something like that, but I think it still has a lot of added value. There's still, I'm, I, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that was in it that, that he put into these Captain Marvel, com uh, Captain Britain comics that left an impact on the industry and comics. Yeah, actually I was going to say that was probably one of the reasons why it didn't make the list is because it's, I think it is a pretty forgotten run, like in, in terms of impact. Um, I don't really know if it's left an impact. Mark, so Alan Moore is someone who, is rightfully considered one of, if not the greatest comic book writer ever. And he's written almost nothing for Marvel Comics. Basically this Captain Britain and like maybe one random uh, issue for charity and uh, for like an, a charity X-Men issue. Like those are the only things he's ever written for Marvel to my knowledge. So just the fact that Captain, that he wrote Captain Britain in the eighties that's that's pretty notable and it it is a run that 
isn't reprinted too often. I know they, they made an omnibus collecting his run and, and like the runs that came before and after him uh, sometime in the past decade or so. I don't know if it's still in, in print or, or easy to obtain. But I, I remember finding these in an old uh, late 90s X-Men, or I forget if it was late 90s or just mid 90s, but back in, the, back in the 90s, there was this comic called X-Men Archives, and they would reprint random old X-Men related comics. And that's how I found the, uh, the Alan Moore Captain Britain run. Like, I didn't realize how fortunate I was to have found it. And it, it's definitely great stuff. There's a lot of ideas and, and concepts in there that even to this day, X-Men writers will still strip mine. Like a lot of the things about uh, the, the other world, uh, you know, the dimension, that's kind of the nexus of the multiverse where all the Captain Britain Corps uh, congregate. Like that was a big part of what Alan Moore did. He laid, he laid the foundation for that. Um, yeah, and, and the idea of the multiverse I think he might have even been the one who coined the term 616 to designate the main Marvel uh, reality and, and different characters in, that he introduced like Jamie Braddock and the Fury. Like even in Dawn of X, man, Jamie Braddock has been showing up in, in those comics. And like, I know Chris Claremont liked to use a lot of uh, those characters too when he was doing uh, Uncanny X-Men and in the early 2000s, like he brought in the Fury um, so it, it's, there's definitely stuff in the stories that, that, uh, writers today will still remember, but I think it feels like in terms of like the overall big picture, not too many people think about Alan Moore's Captain Britain. And that's just unfortunate. And I, I think, I think that's because Marvel doesn't do a good job of publicizing it or, or hyping it up. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't see why that is. Um, I think part of it is probably because Marvel and Alan Moore don't have a relationship. Yeah. I mean, it's weird because, you know, this is a lot of, um, I don't know what the term is. What is that? Like, it's not rubbernecking, is it? Or conjecture, I guess, would be it. But you mentioned it yourself. Um, you know, he doesn't, He he's almost done nothing for marvel and it feels like he did so much work at dc and for you know people that know or follow comics you also know that his relationship with dc is pretty fraught <laughs> so yeah to like, say the it's, least it's, yeah so it's pretty um I, I if i had to guess i would say that him like whatever baggage that he had over at DC just soured him on the idea of working for big publisher again. And yeah, I mean, again, this, this is just conjecture on my part. So I, I don't know why he does. He never did decide to work for Marvel. I remember one of the things that I read was when, um, when they wanted, when Marvel finally was, uh, had, I think they had come closer to, you know, acquiring the rights for uh, Miracle Man slash Marvel Man. I, I remember one of the stories that I read was they were really trying to reach out to him mm -hmm. to try to get him to, you know, write some more or, like, finish off whatever he was going to do. But, uh, you know, 
due to some, I'm going to be generous and I'm going to say like errors on the part of Marvel uh, on some of the stuff. Like I think they printed out the Captain Britain book and I I want to say that they didn't put his name on, on, on it or something like that. But um, because of their, because of the part uh, error on Marvel's part, he, you know, he was already kind of on, on shaky ground with the idea of working with Marvel and having this thing happen just solidified in his mind that he really didn't want to work with Marvel. Yeah. Yeah. Was it intentional or was it accidental? I think it was accidental. Was it intentional? It was accidental. What Marvel I mean, did it sounded like was, it. Yeah. I, I, I remember what you're talking about too. Um, I forget the specifics of the incident off the top of my head for some reason, I'm just having a, uh, a hard time remembering it, but uh, basically, the gist of it is is that Marvel, when they were reprinting uh, Captain Britain at some point, and I think it was either in the late '90s or early 2000s, they uh, so they they messed something up that just irked him, and maybe for other people it would just be a mis- an honest mistake, or maybe even just a perceived slight. But for Alan Moore, that was the thing that completely turned him against marvel yeah on top of that the other thing that happened was when he was doing league of extraordinary gentlemen there was that one issue where they reprinted old advertisements and one of the advertisements was a um an advertisement for a marvel brand douche so this was (laughs) like a real advertisement from from like the victorian era and and when that comic came out or when Marvel heard about that comic, they threatened to take legal action. So what ended up happening was that DC ended up pulping that entire run of comics and Alan Moore did not appreciate that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I think that's something that turned him against DC also because they didn't stand up for him, but yeah. I'm yeah. pretty sure he didn't like Marvel doing that either. And from what I know, um, I think Joe Quesada tried to make some kind of overtures towards him and Alan Moore just wasn't interested. And that's why if you actually buy the Miracle Man reprints that Marvel did, whether you get them on Comixology or you find the physical copies, they don't have his name on it because he, he requested that Marvel take his name off those comics. He doesn't want his name to help sell any Marvel comics. Fair enough. Yeah. It just says the original writer. Yeah. It's a little unfortunate yeah yeah so that that's that's really the only reason why um alan moore is not on this list just a series of unfortunate circumstances but rest assured we will definitely be talking about alan moore comics at some point in the future yep i would rather talk about alan moore comics than rob Lyle's children who wouldn't yeah, <laughs> I think Bob Liefeld would like to talk about Alan Moore more than his children. Uh, I'll bet you a dollar on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm. I'm not actually sure if Rob Liefeld and Alan Moore still like each other. <laughs> okay, make it two dollars. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Actually, Oh, are you, uh, were you going to say? Well, I, I just wanted to say I'm kind of curious about that now, but we can talk about that later. But, okay, so moving on on our list of uh, comics that just barely missed the cut for Top 25 Marvels, 
We have Uncanny X-Force by Rick Remender. Um, was Salvador Larocco one of the artists? Or I am I wrong? I don't believe so. Jerome Pena was, I think. Jerome Pena, uh, Isad Ribich, Billy Tan, Mark Brooks, Greg Tuccini, mm. Phil Noto. There might have been a couple others. I can't remember. There were quite a few artists. So I think Mike McCone might have drawn one or two issues. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So huh. Uncanny X-Force was a more recent run. That was maybe, what, 10, it's 10 years ago? <laughs> Something like 10 years old, I think. Um, this was a run, I, I think. It, it's, it's definitely a run I, I really, really like. I think it, for a superhero comic, for an X-Men comic, it, it actually has quite a bit to say about the nature of violence and consequences uh, that arise because of violent actions and what kind of impact that they have on a life. So I, I actually think it's very fascinating to, to read it, not just as an action adventure superhero comic, but in terms of like what it has to say about the philosophy of, of a violent life. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's nothing that really dragged it down too much other than the fact that I think too many artists kind of kind of hurt um, just in terms of craft because when you think about a lot of the great runs, they had very consistent art with Uncanny X-Force. Yeah, you had uh, the first arc, which was drawn by Jerome Pena, and then the second arc was by Ribich. And then from there, it just kind of became one of those books where every few issues, there'd be a different artist. And this comic was during that era when Marvel was really trying to just churn out comics at a rapid pace. So they would be double shipping uh, issues. And in order to do that, you need multiple artists. So you'd have multiple artists working on the same arc. And it, it was just something that always irked me. Um, I, I think for the sake of making the comic come out quickly, it kind of hurt the everlasting product, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Because now, you know, 10 years later, we have the, the trade paperbacks or the omnibuses and we're not gonna, like, what do I care if, if it took like an extra month for an issue to come out, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. But now that I have the, the final thing that exists, it, it, it kind of bugs me that there's so many different artists and honestly, not all of the artists are that good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this, this is something that we've talked about on this podcast several times in brief, just because we haven't dedicated like an entire episode or a segment to it or anything like that. But uh, every time you, you've discussed it with me, uh, it's, it's always piqued my curiosity about it. I haven't actually read it. And, you know, it just uh, talking to you about it, uh, or you telling me about it rather inspired me so much that I ended up getting all the issues uh, from quarter bins. So we, I got it now and I fully intend to read it yeah, someday. Man. I'm excited uh, for you, dude. I'm pumped. Heck yeah, man. Heck yeah. Like this quarantine uh, has given me the opportunity to read a bunch of my, my back catalog of stuff. So it's, it's coming up, man. It's coming up. Have you read Rick Remender's Uncanny X-Force? You have the Omnibus, right? I have the Omnibus. I haven't read it, though. 
one of these days you guys should read it and, and we can do an episode about it. I mean, there's a lot I haven't read. It's easier to buy than it is to read. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True that. That's for sure. True that. Moving on, we uh, another comic that made it onto our list is Fantastic Fours as well as FF slash Freedom Foundation. Future I guess. Foundation. Future Foundation uh, by Jonathan Hickman and uh, other various artists. I think I want to say, who else? Who drew this? Like Dale Eaglesham was his first artist on Fantastic Four. Uh, and then, uh, like, the, the, when I think of the art, the main ones, the main creators I think of are the ones who drew FF. So, Steve Epting and Nick Darrington are the standout ones to me but yeah, yeah. there were again there were various artists on on this one too i actually yeah. i actually will say that this is another one where i only read it recently so when we were compiling the list like i, I was still in the midst of trying to collect my run and it, it just took me a couple of years because there were some issues that I couldn't find in the quarter bin <laughs> and you know me man oh. I'm, I'm super cheap so i didn't want to pay full price for a comic <laughs> Well, the thing is, I remember um, we went to a couple of sales where we you found like, you know, 97% of it or something like that. It was just like a fat run. Yeah. And you might have been missing like four or five issues. Yeah. Maybe you know, a little more, a little more than four or five issues. Yeah, I was probably missing like 10 issues. You were missing like 10 issues, but I remember one of them was the trade and I, I happened to have the paperback trade that I found at Green Apple, so I gave that to you. Yep. So... You know, but you ended up finding those four issues anyways. But, <laughs> but, yeah, what took so what took a lot of the time was finding the last couple of issues for that. Yeah, that's uh, that hurts. <laughs> Trying to find them for cheap. If I just yeah. wanted to buy it from from like eBay or something or from some store that I could order it from, then it would have been no problem. But I'm stubborn. <laughs> it just it's just one of those things man when you when you get like 30 something of the issues for 25 cents each you don't, you don't really want to pay four bucks for the last one <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> i actually lucked out on my copies because i remember uh tfaw uh this comic book website called things from another world they used to have uh these black friday sales where things would go from 70, they would, there were progressive sales. So every week you would get an extra 10% off. And I remember this might've been, this might have even been the last progressive sale that they ever had before they stopped doing them altogether. Mm -hmm. But I remember I had a bunch of stuff on my list and, um, you know, once it hit 80%, a bunch of stuff disappeared for me, but I did notice that they had, basically all of uh, the Fantastic Four by Jonathan Hickman minus one one hardcover. So I ended up just buying all of them for like 80% off, I think. Yeah. And you, you know? still ended up finding that last hardcover somewhere else. I've, I did. I found it at, I'm pretty sure it was at Green Apple on their discount shelf. So it might've been like 40% off, but you know what? I, That's I'll take it. it, man. Yeah. Yeah. I was the whole run in hardcover. Yeah, exactly. So I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna strain myself just because I didn't find it 
for eighty percent off or anything. I was just like, I'll I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This this yeah. run is just a fantastic run. Like for me personally, having just finished reading it a few months ago, I'll I'll say this is my favorite Fantastic Four story, my favorite Fantastic Four run of all time. So, even though uh, number one on our list was the Stan Lee and Jack Kirby run. This one's still my favorite, you know, because my favorite doesn't necessarily mean it's the greatest according to our criteria. It just means favorite just means I, I like it the most. That's really yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Simple as that, right? Like yeah. I, I never understand why people always think about how their favorites are are always the best. You know, yeah, that's not always true. Things that things that we like can sometimes be. We can recognize them as being bad or not not that great and still enjoy it anyway. So what? Yeah. Just like what you like. With kids and you're like, you tell one of your kids, you're my favorite, but you're not my best child. Yeah. <laughs> totally, man. It's true, though. Yeah. Like, that totally makes sense. And I was even going to say, like, if anything, this should be a sign of our objectivity when <laughs> compiling these lists. Yeah. I don't even need that as a joke. Like that's legit, right? Like yeah. we have the ability to step outside of ourselves and go, I personally like this, but that does not necessarily make it the greatest just by default. Yeah. Exactly. People need to learn exactly. to differentiate between those things. <laughs> yeah, totally. And even even on our top twenty five list, I'll look at things and they're, they're not, it's, not necess- it's not a list of my 25 favorites, you know? Like, not all of those are my absolute favorite comics ever or anything, but they're just the Marvel top 25 based on yeah. our criteria. They're recognized great works. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Based on our criteria, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You, people will notice that our criteria doesn't include, I like it a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what if you like it a lot a lot what if you really really like it still doesn't come into play my friend we are completely objective so we have to stick with our criteria totally unbiased okay another thing that uh was on the list of honorable mentions was silver surfer by stan lee and john buscema this was the run from the late 60s this one, I actually think it's my favorite Stan Lee comic. <laughs> There's that word again, my favorite, right? <laughs> my favorite <laughs> Stan Lee comic. Uh, I, I think it's his, his best writing in terms of what he does the best, which is use his sense of humor to kind of draw out these philosophical ideas and angst and just really emotional stuff even though he's dealing with the cosmic character, uh, I think he, I think this is his best writing. And John Buscema's artwork is spectacular on this. Uh, I have the Essential Edition, which was the the one that collects the entire thing in black and white on on newsprint kind of paper. And in black and white, the line art is just fantastic. I think it's some of John Buscema's best work outside of Savage Sword of Conan. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I I definitely recommend checking out that Silver Surfer run. It it's it's a run that I I don't think is as influential as other stuff that Stanley has written, but 
nonetheless, I would still say that his writing is the strongest in those comics. Do you have any inkling as to why his writing there is stronger, whereas his other works seem to have a different vibe to them? I, I think maybe part of it is because he had such a strong affinity to the Silver Surfer that he felt, he kind of felt comfortable using the Surfer almost as an extension or perhaps even you might say his mouthpiece, but maybe an extension of his own philosophical ideas, specifically his ideas on um, how people treat one another and just how he views the world and, and how alienated he feels looking at the world as an outsider where people are cruel, selfish, violent, and humanity kind of eats itself up and is just headed on this dark path. But at the same time, there's still surprisingly unexpected moments of beauty and, and goodness that, that he sees. And I think like, those are the kind of things that, that felt like Again, I don't, I don't know what Stan Lee was really like as a person, but based on what I, I know about him, it just sounds like him being him, you know? Like, it, it sounds like he's writing about ideas and ideals that were particularly close to his heart. So I think that adds a level of emotional uh, realism and, and makes it feel like it's his most personal writing, even though He's still writing this cosmic superhero character. It's interesting how of the characters' ideas he's created, the hokiest one in some sense is the one which he aligned with at least Commissioner yeah. Moore with. Because like if you think about it, like characters like Spider-Man, you know, uh, Fantastic Four, things created, are actually things that aside putting aside like actual science are reasonable kind of characters that one could picture like yeah that's you know that's the thing i could invent it's 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 or it's like it's something i can kind of connect with on an earthbound sense they give a a surfer in space kind yeah. of just like it's bizarre <laughs> it almost it's almost like something like a teenage kid would come up with you know especially in the, like, the 80s or something when skateboarding was more popular to an extent yeah. <laughs> totally <laughs> I'd also recommend uh, this one Stan Lee story that he did with Mobius from the late 80s. It's called Silver Surfer Parable. It was a two-issue story that they published under the Epic imprint. That's probably his ultimate Silver Surfer story. It's a story about, basically about religion and, and God and humanity. It's, it's like full of big ideas, but it's presented in like this really simple, straightforward way. Uh, yeah, I would just highly recommend reading Silver Surfer Parable. If you, if you ever see that uh, on Comixology or something, definitely pick it up. It's only two issues and it, it's, not, it's not dense at all, but I feel like it's some of Stanley's best stuff from the latter period of his career. Nice. Another uh, big one that missed the cut was Brian Michael Bendis' run on New Avengers. So, uh, Albert, you want to share a little bit about New Avengers? <clears throat> yeah, we actually talked to, I mean, I feel like we talk about this intermittently 
or have talked about this intermittently throughout the course of our podcast. Most recently in the uh, Vision episode that we did, what was it, like a week ago? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, he he basically, Brian Michael Bendis started off by, you know, he was an up-and-comer at Marvel at this point. He had proven himself as a guy who's just knocking comics out of the park, and Marvel decided to give him reins to their lead title, which was the Avengers. And the first thing that he did on the Avengers title was he he created a catastrophe for them called Disassembled, in which he basically disassembled the team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, within the course of, I think it was four issues, he, he tore them down. Was it four issues? Yeah, four issues plus uh, issue five finale, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So five issues. He he tore him down, and you know there was a lot of uh, I guess there was a lot of attention drawn to the fact that there wasn't going to be an Avengers for a while. But you know, comics being comics, of course there was going to be an Avengers at some point, and shortly thereafter, you we saw him come out with his new Avengers, and there was a lot of uh, attention that was being brought on this as well, and. He, what Brian Michael Bendis did with the Avengers was that he saw what the Justice League was over, like, uh, okay, this is me, uh, you know, projecting. If I had to say, he probably saw what uh, the Justice League and how the Justice League was all of the most recognizable big name characters that the Justice League had, mm-hmm. and... He decided, huh? The The DC DC had, sorry. Yeah. And he decided that Avengers should not be any less great than than the Justice League. So you know, he had a team that had Iron Man, and he had a team that had Captain America. But he also put Spider Man on it. He also put Wolverine on it. Just fan favorites, and you know, all these years later, uh, all of the uh, all of the adventures that he uh, that he wrote for them and he, he wrote a really long run on them too. He was on this book for a really long time through yeah. different uh, iterations, but you know, he took the Avengers from not being one of the higher selling books to just a behemoth over at Marvel, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His run was probably around 10 years or so. If you count all the different Avengers titles that he did, yeah, so it was a substantial amount of work, and maybe not, maybe not every story was a classic. But I do think that overall, in when you look at his run on New Avengers in its entirety, counting all of the other Avengers titles that he did, the consistency is remarkably high, and there aren't really too many uh, weak spots. Like even. Even the the weaker stories in the run, they're not so bad that you can't read them. You know, like it, there's there's always like this basic minimum level of quality that he meets, and when he like it, it's a it's a series where the seal the ceiling is high and the floor is pretty high too. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, it's. I don't know why. Why do you think this was something that didn't quite make it up to our top twenty-five? 
Maybe it, it was because of the inconsistency. Like, mm. I think compared to some of the other runs that were really long, maybe the consistency wasn't as great as something as, say, uh, Brew Baker's Captain America, which he also wrote for a pretty dang long time. Yeah. Uh, or even if you compared his New Avengers run to his Ultimate Spider-Man run, I'd probably, I would definitely say his Spider-Man. Oh yeah, for sure. That in terms sure. of consistency, even if Mark yeah. Bagley drew a bunch of it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, if if this this one uh, not making the final list, it, it's just another one of those close calls, man. Like it could have gone either way, but uh, I I do think that. Uh, even the number 25 book on our list, which was the Hickman Avengers and New Avengers run. I, f- I felt mm-hmm. like that one probably was stronger in terms of the overall craft because of the fact that Hickman wrote it with a very specific vision and ending insight. Mm, that's a good point. Like, I do feel like the first... Maybe half of Bendis's run really, it, it had more of a vision because I do think that he was building up to some of the bigger events. Yeah. Uh, they were always hyping it up and talking about how, like, you know, Secret Invasion was the culmination of all of the, like, little hints and clues that he had been dropping in the book over the course of years. Yeah. You know? And, um, yeah, but, like, I'm not saying that the stuff in the latter half of his run, like, lacks uh, direction, but I guess it's just interesting to to ponder. Here's, here's how I look at it. Yeah. yeah. So here, here's how I look at it. It kind of feels like from event to event, that's basically what, uh, event, his Avengers centered around, right? Like every every Avengers built up to the next event that Marvel was going to do. So that kind of made Avengers the important Marvel book for about 10 years because right. that's what took you to House of M. It took you to Civil War, even though he didn't write it. It took you to The Secret Siege. Invasion. It took you to... Uh, the Dark Reign and and Siege, and then the uh, what do you call it? The Age of Heroes or the Heroic Age, whatever it was. Yeah. And and then it kind of felt like after a certain point, maybe the stories felt like they were just revolving around these events too much. Like it, I don't think that when Bendis began back in what like two thousand four that he envisioned something like fear itself or Avengers versus X-Men, you know, seven, eight, nine years down the line. Whereas Mm. I I do think that he had a secret invasion plan from the very beginning. Right, right, right. Maybe that's why it felt a little bit tighter. And then as he went on, you know, then he was kind of like making it up as he went along, obviously in tandem with the other editors and the other architects, they were working together, but it wasn't like, he, he began issue one thinking this is exactly where I'm going to end it. It was more like, I've got these big stories that I want to tell. I'm going to build up to those. And then as he got closer and closer to those points, he would think, <clears throat> Oh, 
there's another point that I can build up to. And he just kept on building up to those next stories. Yeah. So you don't think Civil War, Secret Vision, and Siege were part of Bendis's like initial plan, at least as ideas? I definitely think Secret Invasion was part of his original yeah. vision. I'm, yeah. I'm, if I had to guess, I would guess that Civil War, he probably collaborated a little bit, talked about that with the editors and Mark Miller <clears throat> to to make it yeah. work in the context of his run. Because, yeah. you know, he's he's a guy who's also a team player. He's not some stuck-up writer who doesn't want to, um, you know, share toys with the other writers in the stable. Yeah. Uh, as far as Siege goes, I'm not sure if that's what – like, if, if you ask me if the Brian Michael Bendis, who sat down to write Avengers Disassembled, if you ask me if he had Siege in mind when he sat down to write Avengers number 500, I don't know about that, man. Like – That'd be an interesting question to ask him, to, to ask him, like, how far did he plot out his Avengers? Because if I had to yeah. guess, I would guess that he didn't plot it out to the point of Siege. You know, I would guess that he came up to he came up with Siege after he got up to a certain point in his run. I guess the reason yeah. why I ask this question, I, of course, we'd have to ask him is because I wonder how much he already knew how he wanted Secret Division to end, which is what thrusts Norman Osborn into power, right? Mm-hmm. And so in some sense, like between Civil War, Secret Invasion, and the Siege, that was like a three-part major Marvel event where the status quo is shaken and then it's sort of quasi-restored. Like there's balance restored to the Marvel Universe when Norman Osborn eventually gets his comeuppance because he's a power-hungry maniac. Mm -hmm. Well, realistically speaking, there had to be some sort of uh, culmination to like the Dark Reign stuff, right? So... I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I, I'd have to question whether, like, they put him in charge of of putting that story to to bed, or whether, you know, he personally took it upon himself to be like, "This is how I see this ending." You know, it, that'd be a good question to ask for sure. Yeah. Whereas when you look at the Hickman run, I'm pretty confident that. When he started his run on Avengers, I'm pretty sure that he envisioned Secret Wars, you know? Yeah. I feel pretty confident about that. I hear you. I hear you. Uh, Speaking of Bendis, we got to talk about his Daredevil run. Yeah. That was a run by him and Alex Maleev. And uh, we don't... I feel like we've talked about this a couple of times or, or far mm-hmm. less than his Avengers stuff, but it's definitely a run that we have a lot of love for. It's earlier on in his uh, body of work. It's I think it's a little after Ultimate Spider-Man if it's not at the same time. But it's, well, in my opinion, it's something that put him on the map uh, aside from uh, Ultimate Spider-Man in that it... it confirmed that he was this like massive talent you know yeah because he took daredevil who uh i think at this point at this point in his uh in daredevil's history like there was a bunch of years where nobody was writing daredevil and he had kind of like diminished in the eyes of fans and then uh kevin smith did his run which brought him back into prominence just through the power of Kevin Smith's name. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were like, okay, he's kind of back in 
he's kind of back as a top tier character. People are paying attention to him again. And after, after uh, Kevin Smith, there was a brief period of time where I think I forget what the dude's name was, but I think he wrote the script for like back to the future. Yeah. Bob Gale. Yeah. He, he wrote like a really short run on it. I don't think that that was something that was, um, I, I want to say it was hated or anything, but I don't think it's anything it that necessarily. Connected. Yeah. It was quickly forgotten. And, you know, after that, uh, there might've been like a couple of fill in writers or it was very brief, but after that, like, Shortly after that, Brian Michael Bendis takes over and he just decides to take Daredevil back to his pulp roots and just makes it a hardcore crime story. And, um, you know, we talk about the inconsistencies in his new Avengers stuff. I'd have to say that the Daredevil stuff is is way more consistent. It's him and Alex Maleev. Mm -hmm. Uh, If there are filler artists, I don't remember who they were i'm pretty sure there weren't right there there was one three issue story that had fill in art because i remember those those issues it was the trial of the white tiger do you remember that one uh, i do not I think, super well but i remember yeah that that story was three issues and i think the artists were manuel garcia and terry dodson so mm. yeah there was some fill in Art. But there was also a point where I think right around maybe issue 60 or somewhere around there, uh, Bendis took, a, took like five months off and David Mack did a, did a story for five or six issues, Echo right, Vision right. Quest. <laughs> like it just came in in the, mid, in the middle of uh, Bendis' run to give him, a, right. give him and Maliv a chance to get ahead. Right. And well, that wasn't part of the durable numbering, right, was it? It was. It was oh, part it was okay. of the same numbering, but it wasn't was, part of the run. Was that collected with the Bendis Daredevil omnibus? I don't know. I don't have that omnibus. I, I only have the trade paperbacks. Okay. I'll have to check. I, I have that omnibus somewhere. Yeah. But so regarding his consistency in Daredevil, as far as I recall, because you were buying the single issues when we were at Davis at the time, mm-hmm. there were no major Marvel crossovers during his Daredevil run. Yeah, and if there were crossovers, uh, Daredevil was pretty unaffected by them. Right, so I wonder if because of that, like he was able to kind of plan Daredevil in its solitude rather than trying to worry about how to plan like bigger events and how he intertwined the larger Marvel Universe. Yeah, I'm sure that had a big part uh, in terms of his success. He was able to have his own corner of the Marvel Universe basically and just do whatever he wanted it, it's in a way it's like like playing chess where he was limited in the number in the ways that the pieces could move like he couldn't do like anything that he wanted but within the parameters that he was given he had a lot of freedom to be creative sometimes i feel like that's like the best kind of stories that come out kind of like the best ideas are oftentimes saying it's, it's like being a Boy Scout. It's like you're given a paper clip and a couple other things, and then you have to build a city. So, you're, you're, so rather than having things kind of lazily already established, you have to be really creative to think about how to string together what you have. And that means you have to think about, in this case, 
the construction and development of the story. Like mm-hmm. what really propels this, the character of Daredevil? What, what motivates Matt Murdock to do what he does? And I don't know. I, I think that's what, what it's fascinating. It's like, I think when a, when a writer doesn't, it's not so much I want to say limit a writer because a, a writer should certainly be free to use whatever tools or ideas at their disposal, but having a little bit of like, having like some ground rules for themselves. Like, you know, like, like when you watch a movie and you have like the MacGuffin, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't set the ground rules of a MacGuffin, it's like anything can happen. So the point was, oh, if anything can happen, it removes the tension and the 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 concern of what could really happen. Yeah. Like, yeah. I know. I, I felt this Daredevil was a very was a very more like personal Daredevil kind of story. Like it felt more like a story about Matt Murdock than Daredevil of anything. Mm. Yeah. I could see that, man. Especially because a big part of the story is about Matt Murdock's identity being outed and how he deals with the Again. consequences. Yeah. Mm. Well, also that, but I think in, in his run, Daredevil, Matt Murdock went through uh, several different relationships with people. Um, there was Echo, talking about romantic relationships? Up. Are you talking about romantic relationships? Yeah. Yeah, that was the the story. That run was where Bendis introduced Mila Donovan. That's Mila, Mila. But there's also like, wasn't he sort of at some point involved with Echo? Yeah, Uh, that was during that Vision Quest run. Okay. Like, it was teased. No, no, no. That was uh, during the David Mack run that came before. Okay. Yeah, so like right after Joe Quesada did his run, David Mack did a run. The the Echo Vision Quest story that it had nothing to do with Daredevil. It was a straight up Echo solo story. Okay. Oh, I thought Echo showed up in Daredevil's. Like they interacted. Like. Uh, I. I mean, I don't think that she did, but it's been a while since I read it too. Um, okay. but I want to say that Echo was not really a part of the Bendis Maleev Daredevil run. Okay. Electra and right. Black Widow definitely showed up though. Okay. And he also, uh, that was kind of like the start of Bendis having his own little corner of the Marvel universe. Cause I remember he would have Luke Cage and Jessica Jones show up in an issue of Daredevil because Jessica is a uh, Matt Murdock's bodyguard since, he's, <laughs> his, since his identity was added to the public. And if you read Alias at the same time, there's a scene where she's doing that job <laughs> so there's like kind of a little crossover like that with it's not really obtrusive at all but it's just a fun thing to see that bendis was building his little corner what else we got albert we have uh earth x by alex ross uh kruger and i'm i think that's john Paulion. yeah Jim Kruger yeah. and John Paulion. Yeah. Yeah. This was a pretty epic story. Um, it was actually, it ended up being the first part of, I want to say a three-part story. Yeah. So you had Earth X. Yeah. You had Earth X, uh, Par- uh, Universe X, and then Paradise X. And yeah. uh, But that first chunk, uh, specifically Earth X, was... Even at the time reading it, it's been a while since I've read it, but it was a pretty amazing story from what I remember. It's um, 
like just for a little bit of added context, uh, I don't want to say that this was something that was done in response to like Kingdom Come, but I do feel like I remember when this came out, there was a lot of attention on it because Alex Ross was doing this and this was, you know, after he had done uh, Kingdom Come over at DC. So it was kind of like a big deal. And even though it wasn't like, this is a, this is Alex Ross doing Kingdom Come for uh, the Marvel Universe, like even though they didn't explicitly say that, there was a vibe that, mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys felt it, but I, oh, definitely. I felt, I was, huh? Definitely felt you, that vibe. Yeah, so it was kind of like these... This guy worked on one of the greatest comics over at DC uh, in recent years, and we we got him to come over to to the Marvel side, and he's going to do this story. And I have to say, uh, you know, Earth X did not disappoint. It was it was similar to Kingdom Come in that it was a story that took place in a dark version of Marvel's future, and a lot of it revolved around seeing, you know how a lot of your characters have aged um, mm-hmm. and changed over the years, usually not for the better, you know? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah it's, it's, a, it's a really cool comic, and it's, it's just something that really uh, dives into just the world-building and mythology of the Marvel Universe. And mm-hmm. I, I, like, I'm just, like, mad about John Paul Leon's art in, in, in the comic just because... I love just how thick his line work is and just how like heavy everything looks. Yeah. I love his art. He's, he's definitely one of my favorite comic book artists. Yeah. Did you read Shanus? I want to say I have earth X. I, I'm, I, I think I've read it, but it was like at least 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I haven't read uh, universe X or paradise X though. Do they do they collect all three of them in a single volume, like an omnibus or something? I think there are I two omnibuses say... that collect the yeah. entire thing. I and feel it... like they just did something recently, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Yeah, and like recent they... is relative, but within the past couple of years. Om... Feels yeah, weird. exactly. Like, how would you split it into two omnibuses? You you cut Paradise, you cut Universe X in half. Probably. Maybe. I for... I don't know exactly how they uh, arranged it. That's but a weird way to. I believe it, it was to because, uh, well, Earth X was I believe fourteen issues, mm-hmm. and then Universe X and Paradise X were probably at least another fourteen a pop as well. Maybe even so more there were a bunch of one shots. Yeah, there were a lot of one shots that they wrote to tie into the series. So I think those were longer. Both of those were longer. Yeah. Unfortunately, John Paul Leon did not do the art for the other parts of the trilogy. Yeah. It was less... Uh, yeah. It, I forget who the other artists were, but I remember looking at it and it takes something away from the other stories. Like, I, I have to admit, I haven't actually read the Universe X or uh, Paradise X. And it's something that someday I hope to go back to and, you know, read in its entirety, for sure. Yeah, I've, I've only, I've read Earth X several times because I own it. Universe X and Paradise X, those I've only read once. 
and it's been a really long time you know i'm like talking probably at least like 15 years since i've read them so i I really don't remember much about them i would be interested in rereading them at some point but i guess because i don't really have easy access to them at the moment uh i don't know when i'll get around to it when i do remember when the omnibuses came out i asked the san francisco public library to buy them I requested them at the library, but unfortunately, they rejected my suggestion. They shot you down. They shot me down. Did they say why? No. They didn't explain why. I'm not really sure. I imagine it, it was expensive. It, it could have been because they were like 150 bucks. Fair enough. Each. Each, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like when you ask the library to buy a paperback that's 18 bucks they, they'll usually do it but the couple of times when i've asked them to buy an omnibus they rejected me <laughs> which is unfortunate yeah yeah um i personally i i don't really have an explanation for like all i can say is that we had a really large spreadsheet in which we included a bunch of titles and we felt like the only fair, like, here's a little bit of inside baseball, but we felt like the only fair way to uh, decide these things was through a scoring system, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, we would do, uh, you know, based on our criteria, we would score them, and then we would take what uh, Tally them all the remaining scores. scores and see, you know, what, what made it to the top of the list. And unfortunately... just too fierce. That's all it is. Yeah. Exactly. No That's what no happened. Shame in that. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, moving forward, our next title to to make that li- to make our just missed it list is the Squadron Supreme uh, by Mark Grunwald and Ryan. Yeah, Paul uh, Ryan and a few other artists. Yeah. Uh, this is. This is an older book relative to uh, some of the other things that we have on this list. Uh, I don't remember. It's an 80s comic? Okay. And it's it's basically a 12-issue maxi-series, and it it doesn't even involve characters in the the main, like, 616 Marvel Universe. And it was... It was characters that were created that were very reminiscent of the DC characters. Uh, uh, the, you know, so you had someone that was like a Superman and someone like a Batman, someone like a Green Lantern and someone like a Wonder Woman. It was, yeah, it was all done uh, very to, to look very similar to their DC counterparts. But this was, this is a comic that, another one of those comics where a lot of people referenced it um, as having, as being something that they recognize as having a lot of, uh, I guess like artistic or not artistic, but like uh, just a lot of value and merit in terms of like what it added to like storytelling at the time. So um, one of the, so one of the things that I can think of when I, I think of this comic is that this was something that came out before 
something this was something that came out before Watchmen and a lot of people were saying that Watchmen was this really like revolutionary comic that changed everything but the thing about Squadron Supreme was that this was a comic that kind of touched on those notes that uh, the Watchmen would eventually explore uh, a lot further when it does come out. So it was kind of the Watchmen before Watchmen. <laughs> like yeah. I, I, I don't. I, it feels kind of disparaging to uh, refer to this only by referring to some a, a, a more well-known work. Because it, it's definitely a work that deserves recognition in its own right. And I do think that a lot of people do recognize it. So uh, it's, it's just in terms of a brief synopsis, it's about a world where these superheroes exist. But uh, you might have to fill in the blanks on me uh, for me on this one, Drew. If but I from what I remember... To give it a quick synopsis, I would say it's basically the Justice League or the Squadron Supreme because Marvel doesn't want to get sued. It's basically the Squadron Supreme taking over the world in order to truly make the world a better place. They're, they're trying to create their own, uh, I guess, utopia, yeah, utopia on, on Earth because they have power and they just decide that this is what we're going to do to make the world a better place. And obviously there are some people that don't take too kindly on that sort of initiative and... Uh, it, it, it is an early deconstructionist superhero work. I will say that for all the comparisons to Watchmen, like the, the main thing is that it, it's, it tries to be a story that takes superheroes seriously in, in the world where even though these characters are more colorful than the Watchmen characters, uh, that Mark Grunewald tried to tell a story that dealt with realistic consequences. So it was real in terms of having consequences and um, important decisions that, that affect not only the characters, but the world. Um, it wasn't necessarily like Watchmen in, this, in the way that Watchmen explored the form of comics. So it lacked uh, that kind of depth, but it, Squadron Supreme definitely aimed to tell a story about how superheroes could impact the world on a scale that I don't think we had really seen in any other Marvel comics up to that point. Mm. So that description makes me think more like the authority and coup d'etat. Yeah. Yeah. You could definitely look at something like coup d'etat from Wildstorm and the authority as a, things that took that Squadron Supreme idea and, uh, you know, they just came like 20 years after the fact. Mm. Squadron Supreme was just one of the first ones to, to do it like that. I, I, I also think that uh, it's in terms of the artwork, the artwork is pretty, it's pretty bland. Uh, it, it, it really just looks like your basic 80s Marvel house style art. Like it's, it's not like Frank Miller. It's not Walt Simonson. It's just like your jobber dude who who kind of, <laughs> you know, he he's trying to draw like John Buscema, but he's just not as good as John Buscema, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's basically what it looks like. And I, I think that kind of 
that kind of hurts. And because it's, it's just told in a, it's a, it's a complex story, I think, or it's a story that explores complex ideas, but it's executed in a very simple fashion, which yeah. I think is, it's still a, a really, really good comic. But I also think that um, because of the execution, it, it's, that's probably one of the big reasons why nobody thinks of it in the same breath as Watchmen, other than to say, oh, remember that? It came out before Watchmen. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I will say, like, thematically, I think it has some of the similar ideas where it talks about it's the story that covers power dynamics, and mm-hmm. it's also a story that superficially uh, has similarities to Watchmen in that it's a story about a plot to take a, a plot, a mysterious plot to take over the world, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I feel like that's where a lot of the com- comparison comes from is that, oh, if super people were real, uh, this, yeah. this is kind of the back, you know, this is how they would actually try to take over the world. This, this is the, the intrigue and the machinations that would occur behind the scenes. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So that is our list of the just missed it uh, comics, the the ones that did not quite make it to our top twenty five. Mm-hmm. Do uh, either of you have any additional thoughts that you want to touch on uh, before we move on to honorable mentions? You got anything? No. Famous? No. All right. I, so I think, also, I think it's hard for me to also put in too much, give it much impetus because I wasn't there when the uh, wizards uh, had <laughs> discussed. <laughs> what made the top 25 i mean you know we're always we're 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 here to just jaw about comics man so if you just got anything to say anything to add no we're i'm happy to saying, hear like, it if you ask me, like like the category of like what just missed the top 25 it's hard for me to say anything about that because like i wasn't there making those evaluations as to what made the top 25 well do you have any Thoughts on anything that we just mentioned, or uh, thoughts-wise, um, I, I was actually kind of intrigued that you mentioned uh, Squadron Supreme. Um, I actually personally enjoyed Supreme Power by JMS. Mm-hmm. I thought that was an interesting um, modern take on the Squadron Supreme characters and their introduction to the quote-unquote Marvel universe, although. I think Supreme Power, when it was being written, ignored the larger Marvel universe. I think it, it almost was like felt like its own separate like. Yeah, Earth. it took place in its own re- continuity, its own reality. Yeah, very much like the Squadron Supreme itself. I mean, yeah. it, the Squadron Supreme didn't exist with the Marvel heroes. They were strictly in a uh, imagined to have to be to exist in their own universe. Yeah, there was one issue where some of the Squadron Supreme members went to the 616 and met Captain America. Yeah. <laughs> in later years, they do... Uh, they do... There are different writers that are constantly trying to pull them into the main universe just to, just to play around with them. Yeah, so, but even then, you know, they're like... Alter- those are still... Sometimes they're still alternate versions of the Squadron Supreme, not necessarily the exact same squadron supreme 
in the Mark Gruenwald comic. Yeah. I know they did that in the Avengers Earth Mightiest Heroes um, cartoon from a few years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, I never saw that. So yeah, in that case, the Scorch Supreme Incarnation, they were, they were, they were actually just evil. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that, that's Wait. kind of how the Squadron Supreme was when they were originally created, I think back in the 60s, because it was uh, just a way for Marvel to do a story where the Avengers could fight the Justice League. So <laughs> they, were, they, they did start off as bad guys. That's all you need, man. <laughs> That's all you need. <laughs> this is you Superman spelled with an O of the Injustice League. <laughs> well, to be fair, the like DC has done several incarnations of Marvel characters that you know that they yeah. mess with on their ends. So, but I'll give, I'll give all credit. I think a team called Squadron Supreme is a whole lot better than the Injustice League. Yeah, it's a fun title. It's got alliteration. Uh, what was oh, I the... Just, I, feel like I, just, I, just, I just I make... As much as I know villains are villains, just the idea of them calling themselves the Injustice League just seems a little, just like, I don't know, silly. Kind of, that's a little bit too much like calling yourselves the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Yeah, exactly. It's like... <laughs> Because like the because the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, right? Was, was that led by Magneto? Yeah, yeah. He never regarded himself as evil. He just felt like he was necessary, right? Um, they well, should have been the I think Brotherhood in the of 60s Necessary. Comics, I'm pretty sure he thought he was evil. You really think <laughs> he, he? You think he thought he was evil? I always had the impression that he thought of himself as like as righteous the leader for the mutants. Like he was doing what they needed to be done. Yeah, but. If you look at the 60s comics, man, he was pure evil. Okay. <laughs> and that's when he came up with the name. <laughs> okay. It just seems too on the nose. Like, like <laughs> it was the 60s, man. But yeah, no, I was going to say, it's like, but I think that's like a consequence of that, of that age and error, right? Like, you, yeah. you want people to know that they were evil, so you put evil in the name. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I think I'm drawing a comp- comparison because, like, you think with modern sensibilities, it's something that you'd shoo away from. And so there's a recent DC series that came out uh, by Greg Berlanti, the Stargirl series. Yeah. And in that series, there is an injustice society, yet the, the main role players in the injustice society, they believe they have a vision for a better future. Like they want to promote environmentalism, all these other things, mm-hmm. but they want to do it from the scheme of like, they believe that, mankind is too weak to make the right decisions so it's up to them to control them and make them those decisions for them like but the whole premise is that they believe they will make a better future and yet they call themselves the injustice society maybe which, they're trying well, to be ironic i don't think so like they, they I mean, take their the name pretty that seriously and it's like it just seems but it just came awful too silly for me i mean the thing that i was thinking was i guess they, in their view, in their minds, they could be calling themselves that as a means of, uh, you know, ridding the world of injustice, right? No. Okay. No. <laughs> that, was, well, that was the one thing that made me scratch my head when I watched that show. Was like, why would you call themselves the injustice society if you really think you're trying to make the world a better place? Albeit misguided, you know? Well, the thing that I would probably point to is someone like Grant Morrison who, like, 
he loves all that s- stuff, right? And he doesn't love it ironically or anything. So when he does the Injustice Gang, he does it because, you know, he loves the name the Injustice Gang. So that's what they are. That's what they should be. So I, and I he, think he, in, I think he treats it seriously. Run. Sorry. Huh? Sorry, I, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, yeah, I mean, just my final note on that is, like, he wrote um, – over the course of his Batman, like one of the things that he was always talking about was how he wanted to make take all of the history of Batman and treat it as if it was serious and real. So you had like Batmite and you had the Batman of Zer uh, N or whatever that was. Zer N R. You know, Zer N R. It was all ridiculous stuff, but you know, he wanted to prove or he either wanted to prove that he could make it work or he genuinely had love for it where he was like, this stuff isn't silly, man. This, you know, this is, this is stuff that you can make tons of stories for. So I think I might draw a distinction because I think Grant Morrison's embrace of names like Injustice Society, I think he used them in the context where the characters in those groups reasonably built like I think they wanted to like poke fun at the Justice League by saying we are we don't care about justice we are going to be like the antithesis to you, but like I think I was drawing the comparison to like in the Star Girl show where in with modern sensibility like they didn't regard themselves as being evil they just they thought them, they thought they were doing the right thing through from our perspective you know we think of misguided deeds so like on the show it didn't make sense but in Grant Morrison's run for example like he embraces the history of that stuff you know. That made sense in that context. Yeah, I haven't watched Stargirl, so I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't make a real honest explanation as to why they would call themselves that. I mean, all I really could guess is that my, uh, yeah, I would just guess that they were being ironic in naming themselves that. But <laughs> yeah, if if you don't see it, then yeah, I don't know, man. I got nothing. It just didn't come off that way on the show, yeah. I feel like the the modern like thing to do would be to take them and this is like a very David Goyer thing to do but to take the core of the name and just you know rework it so that it sounds cool so the modern version of them would just be the society or something like that <laughs> and I don't know if I'm down with that <laughs> maybe the injustice society name would make more sense if it had been a name that they call themselves because they were positioning themselves against the Justice Society. I mean, that's basically why Luthor decided to call his group the Injustice Gang because in Morrison's run, he, Luthor was intentionally trying to position the group against the Justice League, so it just made sense. But if there is no Justice Society in Stargirl, then yeah, it kind of doesn't make sense. Well, could I ask this? Do they, is it one of those things where, and like, I didn't finish watching the show. I think I just watched like three episodes and then I was like, good. But <laughs> um, did they actually refer to themselves as the, as the Injustice Society or was it like they actually, so they actually other did. people refer to them as the Injustice Society? So the lone survivor of the Justice Society referred to them as the Injustice Society. Um but I think at some point the 
the, the quote unquote villains themselves referred to themselves as the Injustice Society, but they did it in a non-ironic way and not in a way that seemed like they were positioned against the Justice Society. Like they seemed to exist because they had an agenda and they just seemed to be at odds with the Justice Society because of, you know, um, a matter of people's free will being at the center of it all. Well, what if they had already formed the group and they had already defeated the Justice Society as the Injustice Society and all of their like business cards and all the paperwork was already labeled them as the Injustice Society and it would have just been way too much work to well, redo all is, the paperwork. It, the funny thing to is that in that universe, them. I think at that point when the show takes place, the whole the whole world's kind of forgotten that there even ever was a justice or injustice society. <laughs> so there so wasn't the society. So I don't think there were any business cards floating around anywhere. Well, maybe they had to like they didn't want to change all of their like four hundred one k or five hundred, <laughs> you know, paperwork because they were like, like they're, they're, we're they're already established. Their tax we've already established status. ourselves exactly. <laughs> we're already registered as the Injustice Society. Do you really want to go through all the work of rebranding ourselves? <laughs> <laughs> well. We'll end it here for now and come back next week for part two of our Marvel Top 25 addendum. Next time we'll talk about some of our favorite runs and stories from Marvel Comics that weren't really in too serious consideration to make our Top 25 list, but uh, there were still things that we really enjoyed. We'll also talk about some of the comics that I think most people probably would have expected. I'm talking about the comics that are conspicuous by their absence, so get ready for a little bit about some Chris Claremont Uncanny X-Men discussion. So this is Between the Gutters, signing off. Thanks for listening, In Betweeners. We'll catch you next week.